All right, so <clears throat> last night we talked about basically the nature of the discipleship problem. Oh, right. Kate's throwing up her hands in despair. Pause that thought. New product that I'm supposed to announce. Um, the Voice of God, this is a conference I've been doing that deals with uh, prophetic training. Um, probably at some point I'll do it up here, but you should buy it anyway. Uh, raising a Samuel generation, this is some material I, I uh, did for the assembled sons and daughters of John Paul Jackson at a gathering that was held at his headquarters uh, not long after he died. Um, recovering the Ministry of Inner Healing. A lot of people find this set in particular very useful. It's a training-oriented series dealing with the Ministry of Inner Healing, as the title suggests. But one of the things that's happened over the last probably 15 years is inner healing as a discipline has fallen into complete disuse. And there are few who understand what it's really about. In its place has arisen something that's been propagated by Bethel Church called Sozo. But the philosophical roots and the theological understandings behind inner healing and sozo are not identical. There is overlap. There's quite a bit of overlap, but it's not identical. And, um, well, as the title suggests, rediscovering the ministry of inner healing, I, I personally would like to see inner healing become part of the standard ministry toolkit in most churches because, off the record, but we're on the tape, I don't think Sozo is a flexible enough tool, and I don't think it gets the job done a lot of times, but inner healing will often get you to where Sozo will not. So this might interest you. Um, continuous Revival, Six Ways to Sustain a Move of God. Now, this is a newer uh, series, so I can't really comment on this specific one, but I will say I have two other series on revival, one called The Cycle of Revival, and the other called Accelerating and Outpouring into a Revival they're not in my hand. They're always on my table, and they are my two worst-selling titles. No one ever buys those titles, and yet everybody's saying they want revival. Does anyone see any incongruity with that? I'm not saying that to rebuke. I'm just saying when I look at that, I go, everyone's talking about revival, but no one's buying messages that have the very word revival in them. So anyway, this one's on continuous revival. Maybe it's of interest to you if you seriously are interested in revival. Um, why do Christians need the power of God? That might not be obvious to you why, but there are many reasons we need the power of God. But if we're serious about this revival thing, and we're serious about the lifestyle of purity that goes with that, this might interest you. Ministering to Freemasonry. It's universal in your country. It's nearly universal in mine. Few know how to deal with it. It's a serious problem. Oftentimes people get delivered to Freemasonry. They are literally, literally... People say literally and they don't mean literally, so I'm emphasizing the word literally. And I do mean to the letter, literally instantaneously freed of all kinds of maladies, woes, everything from mental illness to digestive disorders to crook backs to knees to you name it. Anyway, maybe that interests you. When some are not healed, what happens when things go pear-shaped? Um, Christian authority and deliverance. This is a specific... Uh, CD dealing with our authority as believers as it pertains to the ministry of deliverance. Christian authority is an interesting topic. I teach on it, but this one's very targeted. And finally, who is the Holy Spirit? You know, we talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, but um, one pastor in the eastern U.S. said that he, was really, he really liked that message because 
um, he didn't hear enough teaching on the very person of the Spirit. It's more, you know, what you got for me. So those are all newer titles that are on the table, plus some of the older ones. All right, so last night we talked about the problem of discipleship and we talked about why we need to be disciples. Now, this morning, I can already tell you I have more material than time to do it, so I'm going to be editing as I speak, and I'm going, to, I'm going to be speaking fast. So if you're taking notes, hang on. And if you're going to try to remember it all, good luck. So when we talk about disciple-making, we are beginning with a defined endpoint in mind, a defined endpoint in mind. What is a disciple? Well, a disciple is many things, but there is a regular fellowship with Jesus that flows out of discipleship. And by fellowship with Jesus, I do mean ongoing communion with him, but I also mean that there is a commitment to the things of Jesus that um, go with historic Christianity, which may go against the grain of your life. And your commitment to him overrides your commitment to your own thing, whatever your thing is. And with that comes witness. Now, I suggested this last night when I put my finger on evangelism, but true disciples witness. And I'll just say this. I know it's going to be controversial and it might sound harsh, but I'm going to say it. If you've not shared your faith with anybody in a month, I would question whether you are truly walking in close fellowship with Jesus and I would question what your level of discipleship is. Because disciples witness. That is one of the core things that they do. And last night when uh, we were taking questions up the back here, we had a question about um, you know, how do, we, how do we avoid becoming ingrown and inward focused? In many churches, you know, they have a great move of God and then everybody settles down to the, the party of you know, we're, we die, they die of fellowshipitis is what they do. You know, the early church had a problem with that and God solved it by sending persecution and scattering them so that it says they went everywhere preaching the word because they no longer had an option of hanging out in the upper room or in Solomon's portico and having fellowshipitis. So my recommendation is that all of us, myself included, that we take on board and, and choose now to face outwardly not merely to face inwardly. Yes, we do need to face inwardly. That's an important part of a lifestyle of discipleship too because the, the believers met together for fellowship and prayers and the breaking of bread and the teaching of the apostles' doctrine. I did them in reverse order versus what they say in Acts 2. But anyway, um, that is part of a discipleship life, yes. But when we are no longer outward facing, we're not actually sharing our faith proactively something is wrong and so back to my comment last night about diagnostics true disciples are able to feed themselves spiritually they grow to that place I'll talk about how we get there and they understand that the work that they do is ultimately God's work but they are somehow involved with it so God does the work but they are involved and probably the single best illustration of this that I have is found in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and says here 23.9 and next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer the son of Dodo the son of Ahohi 
He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand cleaved to his sword. Okay, there's a lot of physical exertion in this. Would we all agree? Would, you, would we all agree that he was all in? He's probably covered in gore, guts, blood. I mean, some of these Old Testament stories are a little hard to to take but that's what it says but it says and the Lord brought a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the dead the Lord brought a great victory well hang on if the Lord brought a victory what in the world was Eliezer the son of Dodo the son of Ahohi doing out there well he was serving the Lord that's what he was doing and the Lord brought a great victory through him and just in case you missed it and next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Harahite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there is a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled before the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. So there's something about the place of abiding that comes out of feeding yourself, of walking with God continuously, that God will use a mere man or woman to bring about great things and God does that because God is always looking for partners this business of the the revival is going to come the great move of God is going to be like the heavens will rend and suddenly everyone's going to fall on their face and the churches will be filled I don't believe it and I'll bet you a thousand bucks cash on the barrel head right now that you will die waiting for that revival if that's the one you're looking for on the other hand, if you will embrace the discipleship model, you can actually be like Eliezer. You can be like this, I can't even remember his name, um, Shammah. You can be like these two men. And you can bring about a great victory because the Lord is bringing about a great victory. Do you understand what I'm saying? God is looking for people who will wade into the battle. Not only that, the understanding continues in the book of Acts, chapter 10. I love this story. Acts chapter 10. Most of us know it, but I'm just going to refer us to a verse. Sorry I'm standing like this, but it's the only way I can get enough light on the page. It's dark up here, but I know we don't want to turn on the lights because of the heat. Alright, so Acts chapter 10. We have this. <clears throat> Make sure I've got the right passage. All right, so here we go. We've got Peter, right? He's praying. He has his vision of the sheet. He sees unclean animals. God says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. He goes, I'd never do that. Meanwhile, Cornelius is praying. And Cornelius sends word because an angel appears to Cornelius. And the angel comes and he says, Go down to the house of Simon the Tanner. There's a man named Peter there. And he will come with you and he will show you the way of life. Ah, here we go. Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And the next day Peter arose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And so they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them, he had called together his relatives and close friends. I've lost track of the number of times I've had this exact meeting. 
I've gone somewhere and there's some meeting that somebody wants to have and whoever this influencer is, they've gathered their relatives, they've gathered their close friends and then something happens in that house, God falls, prophecy starts flowing, people get healed, whatever it is. But anyway, Cornelius says, four days ago at about this hour I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, that would be three o'clock in the afternoon. By the way, that says something about Cornelius's piety. It was structured. We're going to talk about that today, too. There was a rhythm to it. There was a predictability to it. He was regularly praying at three o'clock in the afternoon. It being the Mediterranean, maybe a lot of people were taking siestas, but he used his siesta hour for prayer. And a man stood before me in bright clothing and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging at the house of another Simon who is a tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Now, query... Why didn't the angel just preach the gospel to Cornelius? I mean, he's there. He's a messenger of the Lord. He's appeared in response to Cornelius' piety. We hear stories all the time of angels appearing to people in the Islamic world and they're being converted because they saw an angel. Good when it happens. How come it didn't happen here? It didn't happen here because God wants men and women engaged in the process of preaching the gospel. It is not enough to say, let's just call for the angels and let them do all the work. And it's right here in the Scriptures. So, part of the process of becoming a disciple is to understand that God does the work, as we saw with these two fighters of David's in 2 Samuel 23, but at the same time, we understand that God uses people. And as part of being a disciple, we offer ourselves in the day of battle. The people of God will do exploits, is what the Scripture says. Not the angels of God will do exploits, the people of God. That's us. So disciples are the product of a healthy church life. And they are individually crafted. It is very difficult to mass-produce disciples although everybody in the world has tried to come up with a way of doing it generally because they want programs so think of a factory model you put in man hours you put in raw materials you put in money outcomes on the back end cars but if a car company should lose sight of the fact that its goal is to manufacture cars it will go out of business General Motors about seven years ago the largest car manufacturer in the world nearly went bankrupt because they forgot that they were in the car making business. They were issuing home mortgages, they had an IT business, they had a credit card business, they had an automotive finance business, that one kind of made sense because it helped people buy the cars. But at the end of the day, what they really needed to be doing was making cars that people wanted to buy. Good cars, economical cars, reliable cars, and they, they, they fell down on that and they very nearly went bankrupt. And I said last night, that the Protestant Reformation is out of fuel and we're 500 years downrange. You know why? Because we've lost sight of the fact that our goal is to make disciples. The church model then is very similar to the earthly model. 
We add man hours, we add money, we may add, I won't say raw materials, I'll just say spiritual inputs of various sorts, and the outcome should be disciples. Not mere believers, and certainly not mere Christians who simply have a label that they tick the box on their census form and say, I'm a Christian, but people who are actually engaged. So who are these disciples and how are they selected and what are they to become? Well, the individuals can vary widely. When you look at those whom Jesus selected, we have Simon the Zealot. He was opposed to Roman rule. He was a revolutionary. Today we might call him a terrorist. And next to him was Levi, the tax collector, who became Matthew. I mentioned him last night. He worked for the Roman government. That must have made for some rather interesting political conversation at dinner time from time to time when Jesus and the twelve would gather. Don't you think? We've got Judas Iscariot. Now, the Iscarioti were those who carried daggers. They were murderers. They were assassins. That's who the Iscarioti were. You might think today of somebody who likes to carry weapons. I know it's not as common in your country as mine, but I noticed that there was a shooting here in Queensland two days ago, so people are doing it anyway, with or without permits. So think about that next to a peacenik who doesn't want anything to do with that kind of violent confrontation. So evidently Jesus looked beyond external criteria. He looked at the heart. Not only that, disciples are selected, and the process is somewhat selective because they are selected. So in Luke chapter 6 it says this about disciples. In those days he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Let me just ask a question. Don't raise your hand in answer. I'm just going to ask it. Again, I'm trying to front some things up. Have you ever spent a night in prayer? All the way through to dawn. Yes or no? Don't answer. Because if you say yes, you're bragging, and if you say no, you're feeling shame. Both are sin. But ask yourself that, because that's what Jesus did. All night he prayed, and then he came down at daybreak, and he called his disciples, and he chose from among them twelve. I suppose he got their names that night in prayer. So when we talk about discipleship, it should be bathed in prayer for selection as well as ongoing care and maintenance and training. When we're looking for disciples, we should be praying because sometimes the most improbable people will be the ones you choose. You might not have chosen a zealot and an Iscariot in order to be part of your discipleship band. You'd say, we don't need those kind of roughnecks in the church. On the other hand, if you were leading the uh, upper crust super white-collar, such-and-such denominational church in the most tony suburb of Brisbane, you probably wouldn't have picked Peter and Andrew and James and John either. Because they were blue-collar guys. They were tradies. They were fishermen. So the principle that we see from the Old Testament, God doesn't look on external appearance. He looks on the heart. is still in play. Moreover, Mark elaborates on this Luke passage Mark chapter 3 says this, He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him. Oh, 
So not only did he pray, but the whole objective, the whole point of it was these men were going to be with him. They were going to accompany him. They were going to spend a lot of time with him. Every day, let's say 12 hours a day, 365 days a year, do the math, that works out to almost 4,400 hours a year. That's like two full work years per year. They were ministering with him. They were, they were being taught. Um, but there was also with it, it says in Mark 4, 11, when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is in parables. So it's not only that they hung around with him, observing his life, learning to do what he did, it's that they also were being given, shall we say, the inside dope. And for whatever reason, it wasn't appropriate, and there could be many reasons, and we're certainly not trying to create classism within the church, but for the wider audience, Jesus wasn't going to disseminate everything. He wasn't going to, as we would say, throw his pearls before swine. Not only that, they were to share his honor and authority. It says in both Luke chapter 9 and in Matthew chapter 10, both of them being verse 1, that he gave them power and authority. He took what was on him and he put it on them. The process of discipleship is we take that which we have received, which we have heard, which our hands have touched, and we give it to you. That's what we do in discipleship. And that is not something you can mass produce. That takes time. That takes effort. That takes intentionality. We see a similar passage, but for time I can't really go there and read it, so I'll just cite it. Numbers 27, 15 to 23, Moses says to God in so many words, I need some help here. And God says, take Joshua the son of Nun who has served you from your youth and put your hands on him and I will take of the spirit that is on you and I will put that on him. But it started with proximity. You know, a lot of times I, I'm traveling and people come up and they say, will you lay hands on me and give me your mantle? Or words to that effect. And I always think, I don't know that, if I, that I can. Because it's based in relationship. You know, I've got, a, I've got a number of guys that travel with me and I've got Kate. And a few other women not as far along as Kate. Paul and Jesus both had women that traveled with him too. So this is an equal opportunity gig. But the point is, if I'm going to lay my hands on somebody in that way, it's going to be Kevin Lumsden. Some of you see him on my Facebook group from time to time. Or Rip Wahlberg or Kate. Because they're with me. They're learning. They understand my thought. They're, they're, they're traveling with me. I try to pour into everywhere I go. But, you know, sometimes Paul would camp out somewhere for months. He spent three months in Greece. He spent 18 months in Corinth. He did this with the objective of pouring into them and then he appointed elders in every town. These were people who had shown enough competence, enough insistence, enough discipline, enough willingness and hunger that now they were moving into that place of replicating the very thing that their leader, their master, their rabbi was doing. Many of the people that we uh, raise up to be disciples, they will be taken from work just as all of these that I have named were taken from work. It is more common to find a disciple from among the regular workforce than from among those of the academy. That might be good news to you if you don't have a seminary degree or maybe even a university education. 
and they should come eagerly, just as those who were selected in the Bible came eagerly or willingly. Peter and Andrew, James, John, and Levi, all of them quickly left their businesses when Jesus said, come, follow me. I'm going to give you the opportunity of a lifetime. The pay is horrible, the hours are long, you'll often be hungry and your feet will be sore, but you're going to love this. And they left what they had and followed. Similarly, Elijah offered to Elisha three times the chance to turn back and not follow him any further. Three times, Elijah said, turn back, don't come. He did it at Bethel, he did it at Jericho, and then he did it at the waters of the Jordan, and three times Elisha said, I will come with you. This is found in the story of Elijah's ascension, 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1-6. to We want people who are committed who will stick in this thing for the long haul. And one of the best ways you'll recognize that is, they're there every time the church has the doors open. Or they want to be with you everywhere you go. You know, Kevin Lumsden, I don't know, I've lost track, he probably knows, I think he's been on 30 ministry trips with me. When I was young in the vineyard, I don't know how many ministry trips I went on with John Wimber. It was aided by the fact that I worked for him. But there was another man named Blaine Cook. I went on over a hundred ministry trips with Blaine Cook. A hundred. There was something about what he was doing. I wanted it. I wanted to be in on it. I wanted to learn it. I wanted to see it. I wanted to pick his brain. I wanted to, I wanted to be there. I look at Kate. She's left aside a career as a scientific researcher. She's got good skills from a decent university. <laughs> she travels all over the world. She goes through all kinds of harassment and hardship and everything else. But, you know, I look at Kate and I'll tell you what, I'll, I'm going to praise Kate publicly. She's loyal. She's faithful. She doesn't screw up. She's a, she's a, she's a Phoebe. Paul said, in one of his letters, I commend to you, Phoebe, a deaconess from the church at Kentrea. She's a Phoebe. We need people like this, that what they are about is the kingdom of God, and they show it by their actions. And not only that, they become team players. They, they participate in the work and the life that is going on, whether it be in the local church or elsewhere if they become involved in some other form of ministry. We see this in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. So Peter is reporting the Cornelius experience that I've just noted that he had to go do to preach the gospel because the angel wasn't going to do it. Acts 11:12. and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit told me to go with them making no distinction, meaning they were Gentiles and we were Jews. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. That's what you call a team. They're traveling as kind of a small unit, but they're doing what they do together. And he told me how he had seen the angel stand at his house and told me to send to the house of Simon. Similarly, in Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, Verse 4, after the uproar ceased, we're starting in verse 1 for context, 
Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he's bade them farewell and departed for Macedonia. So southeastern Europe. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece and there he spent three months. That's what I just referred to. He was not always on the move. He poured deeply into one location. That's what I'm getting ready to do in New York City. The people of New York have asked me to come. The leaders of the church in New York have asked me to come and give them three months. So I'm working on clearing my calendar so I can do it honorably. But to me, it's like a Macedonian call. Come and help us. So this plot arises among the Jews. And so he decides to go back through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean. All right, Berea is on the Greek uh, peninsula. Paul had had good ministry in Berea, but it was cut short by a riot of Thessalonian Jews that had come down there because they'd heard he'd gone there. So somehow he'd picked up a, a follower in Sopater. He was the son of a man named Pyrrhus. And he accompanied him. And two of the true people from the church in Thessalonica, one named Aristarchus and other Secundus. They had interesting names back then. Secundus means the second. So he's the second born son. That's what Secundus means. It's not a very, you know, your name's Ken. I like that name. But Secundus, that's not very dignified. And they also had names like Tertius and Quartus, number three and number four. But anyway, okay. So he's got these two Thessalonians. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and five days later we came to them at Troas and we stayed for seven days. So Paul's got a team that traveled with him too. Sometimes Silas was there, other times Barnabas, although at one point Paul had had a disagreement with Barnabas about John Mark, so they'd parted ways. Later they were reconciled. But you can see that these people are traveling with these apostles and the whole point of it is that they would be trained, that they would be raised up, that they would be learned. They are trying to replicate in their own lives, in the lives of their followers, the very thing that they live for. So when we talk about this, we talk about development, what are we trying to do? Simply, we are trying to take people through a process that starts with convert. It's a pipeline. We need intake. Intake comes with converts. If we don't have converts, the discipleship loop will ultimately break down. This is why we need to have converts. This is why we need to raise the profile of evangelism. I'll talk about it more. From convert, we make disciples. Now, discipling, and this is where Kirk wanted me to emphasize, so I'm going to spend more time on this than on the others, but I will mention the others. Maybe at a later time I'll come back and teach on the others in more detail. But at a discipleship level, we are taking raw converts, fresh meat, if you will, and we are trying to turn them into people who are able to carry out the basic disciplines of the Christian life. There are many people sitting in our churches who cannot do that, will not do that, and have no idea how to do that. It's up to us to bring them to that place. Some of those people have been sitting in our churches for a long time. And we've done them no favors by not helping them get to the place of maturity. And I might add, oftentimes when people fall away, it's because we have not sown into their lives in such a way that they have the wherewithal to stand in the midst of whatever they're facing. Instead, because of the challenges of life and whatnot, they simply fall away. It's that, it's that thing that Jesus talked about, the seed that is scattered. 
And he said, you know, some falls on rocky soil, it never gets anywhere because the birds come and snatch it or on the footpath. And the next group falls on rocky soil, it springs up and wilts. But you know, if we take the rocks out of people's lives, that soil might actually be halfway decent soil, it's just not deep enough. That's what we're doing with discipleship, we're trying to deepen the soil. Similarly, he talks about thorns that spring up and choke out the crop. Well, that's the distractions, and this is also part of discipleship. We want to help people identify and eliminate those distractions proactively, and we must be personally engaged and involved in it at every single step. It's not enough just to give someone a book. It's not enough just to exhort them. You need to show them, and I'm going to talk about what that looks like. Once they move from disciple, they become a worker. Now, workers are a far more advanced stage. I'll talk about it more, but I'll just say they become a worker after they become a disciple, and finally they become a leader. Now, if you talk to people who understand this process that work with discipleship, teach it in seminaries, or uh, who are you know, seasoned church leaders, they will tell you that on average, and yes, you can accelerate it a bit, you can also elongate it a lot. On average, it takes two years to bring a convert into a full discipleship model. Two years. 104 weeks. It's a lot that you can cover in 104 weeks if you are sowing into the life of somebody who is a raw convert. Could it be faster? Yes, if they're hungry. Yes, if you meet more often. Uh, yes, if they're showing dedication and commitment. Yes, but on average, it's two years. It takes two years to go from disciple to worker. Because there's a whole other set of competencies that need to be involved. And again, can it be accelerated? Yes, but not by much and not often. And then it takes three years to turn somebody into a leader. So we've got a seven-year timeline here. Now I know, everyone says, well, we've got to get people out there now. And what about the stories I hear of someone who got converted five minutes ago and now they're healing the sick? Praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit's on them. But that doesn't mean they have the basic competencies and disciplines and character of the Christian life. It means there's anointing on them. And one of the big errors that we have fallen to in the modern church is this. We think anointing is everything, so people go to every conference they can possibly attend seeking to get hands laid on them so they can get the anointing. Impartation is the name of the game. But who's actually teaching skills? Who's actually teaching lifestyle? Who's actually teaching, here's how you do the ministry? Almost nobody. And that's where our whole model is breaking down. I'm all for impartation. I've had hands laid on me by, among other people, John Wimber, Blaine Cook, Lonnie Frisbee, John Paul Jackson, Bob Jones, Paul Kane. I've had hands laid on me by some pretty heavy people. Bill Johnson, Randy Clark. I could keep talking. I'm not trying to brag. I'm saying I believe in this. But what I'm telling you right now, I didn't learn from most, well, some of this came from John. So, what did Paul say to Timothy, his traveling companion, who was part of his apostolic band? What did Paul say to Timothy? Timothy, he even acknowledges, I laid hands on you and a gift was imparted to you through prophetic presbytery. And he says, fan it into flame. It's died down, Timothy. Fan it into flame again. But what else does he say to Timothy? Study 
to show yourself approved. Not enough just to get impartation. Crack the books. Become diligent. Be excellent in what you learn and do. Do as good a job for Jesus in the church as you would do for your employer in the world. In fact, do better. That's what's underneath all of that. So anointing with skills or discipline or education. Say what you want. I don't care. I'm not going to argue about words. So converts arise from evangelism which occurs through witness. Paul, uh, Jesus said in Mark 16, 15, you will be my witnesses. Go share the gospel. That's where we get converts. We get them from evangelism. If we have no converts, we're doing something wrong with evangelism. I'm not saying you have to lead seven to ten people to the Lord a week. My friend Victoria, she might be a little farther out there than you are, but I will say this, she's fearless. That's her number one thing. She's fearless. Most of us fear men. Most of us are too worried about social convention. Most of us are way too middle class and white. And I'm looking at the room. Everyone in the room is white. Except you. Converts come about, or sorry, excuse me, disciples come about from converts because of follow-up, which means training and establishing them in the faith. Colossians 2, 6, and 7 talks about this. Being established in the faith. And this is where a lot of our breakdown is occurring. People come to an event, they have an experience. Two days later, they don't even know what that was. They certainly can't articulate anything and they're gone like the wind. So we have to find a way to train and establish them. And that usually happens through one-on-one -on -one contact. High investiture in their lives. Get their cell phone, follow them up, take them to lunch, buy them coffee, invite them to church. There's a lot that goes with it. I'm going to talk about all that in a minute, so I'm not going to belabor it. But... You can't be a soul winner without being a follower-upper. It's not good English, but I'm trying to make the point. And it's not enough just to say, oh yeah, just come on down to Pine Rivers on Sunday morning, rock up and it's going to be great, mate. If that's all you're doing, you are failing as somebody who is bringing about a disciple from a convert. Third thing, Disciples become workers through equipping. So establishing and training isn't the same thing as equipping. But equipping comes later. First you've got to have a disciple to equip. And finally, workers rise to leaders through coaching, which usually looks like in-depth personal training. Mark 3.14 says he appointed them that they would be with him. I think Jesus was taking the burrs out of their fur. I think Jesus was looking at specific things in their lives and speaking into those things. Ask Kate. Sometimes I'm very hard on her. I will say, Kate, this needs to leave your life now. Not because I don't like her, not because I don't respect her, but because I'm with her a lot and I see things. I see how she lives and when it's appropriate and it's time and I feel that it's necessary, I will speak to it. I've done it with Kevin, with Rip, other people that travel with me too. Not that I think I'm great, I just think that's part of what leaders do. That's the job of somebody who's a spiritual overseer of whatever sort they are. Does that make sense to everybody? So what are the competencies that we're striving for at each stage of development? Well, for converts, the goal is grounding. We just want them to be steady. So the profile of a convert is this. Number one, he or she gives evidence of possessing new life. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, she or he is a new creation. The old is gone, all things have become new. So there should be some evidence of it. 
It may not be much. It might just be an excitement that they prayed and they feel alive and they want to talk to someone about that. But there is some evidence. You should be looking for that. If they give no evidence of it, question whether they really had a born-again experience. There are some people who have false births, just like Braxton Hicks contractions when babies are coming. You know what that is, right? Okay. They have a favorable attitude toward Jesus. That's, a, that's an indicator of every single person who is a Christian. That's why Paul says to the Corinthian church, no one who is speaking by the Spirit can say Jesus be cursed. So when you get people who say, I'm a believer, but they say, well, I don't know what I think about that Jesus and some of his teaching about this, that, or the other thing, that's a red flag right there. Not even yellow, it's red. And they also have an unfavorable attitude towards sin, even if they don't yet have complete victory over sin. They at least recognize, I need to get this out of my life and I don't like it anymore. I used to be that way, but now I'm this way. Luke 9.23 and Romans 12.1 and 2 speak to this. All right, general guidelines when you're working with a convert. Give small bites. They don't know anything. You give them too much, it'll be like a baby. You feed them too much. Blech. So give them small bites and maybe go back and reinforce it after the fact. Probably the first thing you want to do with a raw convert is teach them to have a quiet time with God. Now, how are you going to do that? This is show, don't tell. Let me say that again. This is show, don't tell. Sit down with your Bible, show them how you have a quiet time. If you don't know how to have a quiet time, by definition, something's wrong with your discipleship. Now, there's a lot of places you can get resources for this. I could teach a class on that, but I've got a bigger agenda today, so I'm not going to get into that in great detail. I'll just say, you should be having regular quiet times. No, we're not going to be slavish about it and say, if you didn't do it seven out of seven days, you know, you're going to hell and you're in bondage. But, you know, it ought to be kind of six, seven days a week, five days a week. If it's falling below that, you're not using your time well, and time is a measure of discipleship. It is. How long does the quiet time need to take? I think it needs to take long enough to read a passage of Scripture, think about it a little bit, and at least observe a couple of things from it that might apply to your own life. So, say five minutes, ten, and probably, let's say, to start ten minutes of prayer. So 20 minutes a day. If you can't find 20 minutes a day for Jesus, how serious are you about him really? And by the way, while we're on that and we're on time allocation, let's just say something here. I know the size of this church and I'm looking at the attendance here. I'm not saying it because I'm offended, because I'm not, not in the least. I've spoken to small crowds, I've spoken to big crowds, I've spoken to huge crowds. I'm not at all offended. This is not about Ken in the least. But when I came in today, I was talking to one of you about the crowd and how it's smaller right now than it was last night. And the person said, well, people have a lot of commitments on Saturdays. Right, but this event has been planned for at least weeks, probably, well, I know Kirk and I planned it last year. I don't know how long it's been announced. So I can remember a day in the Vineyard Movement where if an event was going on, everybody was there. You wouldn't want to miss it. I'm not saying it because I'm great. I'm saying it because that's where the people's hearts were. That's how they allocated their time. Because discipleship is measured by your time use, what you give your energy to, and how you spend your money, principally. Those are your three big metrics. And so when I look at this, I go, there's a discipleship problem in this church. 
I know people have soccer games and I know people have this and that, but sometimes you say, you know, we're not going to do that. We're going we're to take a break from it this week. We're going to get the shopping done early. We're going to do the laundry on Thursday night and, you know, whatever. But we're going to make sure we're going to be there. Again, I'm not saying it because I'm offended. I'm saying it because I'm looking at what, what the, the, the crowd size is telling me about where discipleship is at in this church right now. These guys, I'm going to brag on these guys, they live down on the south end of Brisbane. What would you drive, 90 minutes to get here? For 75? 35. All right. They fly low. 35 minutes. All right. But they came a longer way than most people that are here. Why? Well, because they thought there'd be something worth doing here. Hopefully there is. Hopefully I'm giving you something worth coming all that way. So when you do this quiet time with them, show them how you do it. Then maybe the next time, maybe you do one and they do one, but use the same scripture passage and compare notes. What'd you get out of this? Talk about it a bit. You might need to do this three or four times. Is that going to take you time? Yes, it is. Is it going to yield huge dividends? Absolutely. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked whatsoever a man or woman sows. That shall he or she also reap. If you sow into someone's life, you will reap a dividend from that sowing. What are your key objectives with a convert? You want them to have assurance of salvation. You want them to have acceptance. They want to know they're accepted both by God and by you. You want them protected from those that would take them away from the righteousness of the Lord. I didn't give you verses, so let's back up. Assurance. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I already quoted it. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Or woman, then she is a new creation. The old is gone, all things have become new. 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness. And the blood of his Son, Jesus, cleanses us from every sin. You'd be shocked if you have a brand new convert. If you ask him, do you know that you've been forgiven your sins? Uh, I don't know. I think so. You told me so. So what are we trying to do? We're trying to focus them into the Word of God to get them grounded with assurance. Also, 1 John 5, 11 and 12. On acceptance, 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, 2, 10 and 11, and 2, 17 and 20. Paul talks about how affectionate he was towards the Thessalonians, how he loved them, how he longed to be with them. Those that are converts that we have taken on as our disciples, we want them to know we actually do like them. We, we, we care about them. We think about them. They are on our mind when we are not present together. There should be a joyfulness when we see them. Protection. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 13, 7 about how like a father, he's fretting that somebody may have led them away from pure-hearted devotion to Christ. Because Paul knew there were false teachers. Paul knew there was bad doctrine out there. Paul knew that people could fall away, drift, and wander. He didn't want that to happen. Also, Galatians 4.19 speaks to this. In fact, at one point he says in the book of Galatians, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. But if someone comes to you with another gospel, you, believe, you receive it readily enough. He was jealous. He was concerned that they be protected, that they not be drawn away to many doctrines and errors. Fourth thing about an, of, in terms of objectives for new converts, we want them in fellowship. 
Acts 2.42 talks about they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the Word of God, to prayer, the breaking of bread, and to fellowship. Fellowship. They need to be joining with believers. We're not trying to completely take them out of their old life, but we want there to be enough counterbalancing forces to the sin that is in their old life, and believe me, there's still plenty of it right there waiting to suck them back in, that there's a counterbalance, there's a weight, there's something to offset that. So we have to incorporate them into the fellowship. And if they can't come to this one, help them find another one. Literally escort them to the other church and make sure they are plugged into that church before you leave them like a baby in a basket on the doorstep. This is not Dropbox that we are playing here. I'm talking about the movie. Are we all together? By the way, every single thing I'm telling you right now, I have myself done. Many times with many converts. It's, this can be done. Yes, it will take time. It's like having a child. It takes time, doesn't it, Neil? It takes money, doesn't it, Ken? It takes energy, doesn't it, Anne-Marie? Lots of it. But we are committed to the King's work. Christianity is not an appendage to our lives, something we flange on for entertainment. It is who we are, it is what we live, this is what we do, and everything is oriented around that. We also want to get them to gain spiritual food. Acts 2.42 mentions this, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the, and the uh, Word of God. Well, why would they be doing that? Because these people who are coming into the church have to be instructed in what is it that we believe and what are we holding on to in terms of faith and so forth? 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3, talks about as newborn babes, there it is, a convert, as a newborn babe, crave spir pure spiritual milk. Crave pure spiritual milk. People need to be given the milk before they are given the meat. And then we want to train them in basic competencies of Bible reading, literally how to read it and how to establish that as a discipline of life. I know we don't like the word discipline. I know we don't like words like repetitive. Everybody's worried about being religious. But you know, that which we practice, we become good at. Is anyone in, the, in this room a weightlifter? Go to the gym regularly? No? I used to. I used to go to the gym six days a week. I don't anymore because I travel all the time and I look like it. But when I started in this thing called itinerant ministry, I had six-pack abs, I was ripped and cut, and I was 10 kilos lighter. Because every day I went to the gym, I had a discipline about it. Nobody said, you're too religious about your gym attendance. But when it comes to Bible reading, when it comes to Scripture memorization, when it comes to studying the Word of God, oh, God forbid! And yet, the Scripture commends those who apply themselves diligently to the Word of God. The entire 119th Psalm is about this. The Bereans were commended in Acts chapter 17. It says the Bereans were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures to see whether what Paul said was so. And we need to get these converts accustomed to praying. We need to teach them how to pray. Most of them won't really know how. You say praying's easy. They don't know that. So you're going to have to show them how to pray. We'll talk about that. All right, now we've got our convert basically somehow a little bit grounded. And it's focused on the ability to have some kind of a basic quiet time. 
through reading the Word of God, studying it as, as they are able, which will be minimal at, at the beginning, maybe starting to memorize a few verses that deal with things like assurance, acceptance, protection, why they need to be in fellowship. So we're familiarizing them with that. And, last thing, we want them to know how to witness. We want them to be able to share basically what happened to me and why I've changed my lifestyle completely. So when their friends say, how come you don't want to go out and party with us anymore? How come you're no longer angry and militant and part of the, you know, green party or whatever? The, <laughs> the citizens militia of Queensland, if they're a, if they're a skinhead and a right winger, they can say, this is what happened to me. Now they don't, have to be, they don't have to be a sole winner yet, but the goal is that they would become that. But they ought to be able to articulate what it is that happened to them in some manner. So talk it through with them. Emphasize the key points. Now if you don't know how to do that, see this just shows where the whole discipleship loop has broken down. I mean I could give even more training on that, but I'm, I'm scanning over that on purpose, skimming over it, because it's already 11 o'clock and we're supposed to take a break in 30 minutes. Let's move to the discipleship component. So we've gone from convert to disciple. We now have someone who's grounded and stabilized, but there's this process of discipleship. And remember, I told you that this is about a two-year process till they are a full-fledged disciple. And our goal here is that there would be consistency. Not mere grounding, but consistency. We're trying to even out the high highs and the low lows that go with anybody who's a new believer. And there, there will be those things. So you can't get offended when it happens. What's the profile of a disciple? Well, number one, they put Christ first in every area of life. Or at least that's the objective. They won't be there at the beginning, but they should be at the end. And they are taking steps to separate themselves from sinful practices. Number two, they continue in the Word through Bible study, Bible reading, Bible study. They're not quite the same thing, but anyway, they're consuming the Bible. You know, I, I, I've seen plenty of people who come to Christ, and literally within three days they've read the entire New Testament. You know, that's a hungry person. Some people will do that. Others won't. The people who do that, by the way, tend to be people who are already somewhat educated, literate. They read anyway. So the Bible doesn't really put them off. Other people who, they've never read a book in their lives and all they ever do is sit and watch the telly, it'll be harder for them. Maybe you need to direct them to books on tape or something and get them the Bible you know, as a downloadable MP3 they can put on their phone. But however you're going to do it, get them in the Word. Get them learning the Word. That means they're starting to memorize parts of it anyway. They're not going to memorize everything. Just give them one simple verse. One a week is enough. Remember, small baby bites, not big bites. Alright, not only that, a disciple will apply the word to his or her life and decisions. And I've got a couple of verses on this. One of them is John 8.31. James 1.22-25. James says the one who looks at the word and then doesn't remember what they read is like one who looks at themselves in the mirror, goes away and forgets what they look like. And Psalm 11 I have Psalm 11:59. I think that's supposed to be Psalm 119:59. So they are starting to apply the word to their life and, and 
uh, and the decisions that they make. Now, when you talk about that, everybody's got decisions to make. And as a new believer, do you honestly think they're going to take this, which has about three quarters of a million words in it, and they're just going to know where to go? Wrong. That's why you're meeting with this person regularly. So when they tell you their life, and you are telling them they're yours too, you are sharing lives. That's what Paul was emphasizing in that 1 Thessalonians 2 passage that I already gave you. When they share with you their, their life, I'm trying to make a decision about this. You can say, well, you know, the Scripture actually speaks to that. Here, let's look at and literally open the book. Don't put it up on your phone. Don't pull out your tablet. Pull out an analog paper book. Doesn't need leather covers, but it better be a real Bible. So you can open it, point to the verse, and have them read it. There is something about the Word of God. God Himself says that His Word does not return void. So count on that. Fourth thing, they are starting to have some sort of regular devotional life. I'll say consistent, but you know, for someone who's on the early end of a discipleship loop, that two-year loop, consistent might mean twice a week or three times a week when you're meeting with them. But they're at least starting to get the hang of it. And they're starting to develop some appetite for it, and they're starting to do it. And they're starting to grow in faith. They're starting to believe God for more than just their salvation. Maybe they need a job, they pray for it. Maybe their car broke down, they pray for that. But they're, they're learning those basic competencies, and they're starting to have some kind of reasonable prayer life. Here's three verses on this. Mark 1.35, Hebrews 11.6, and Colossians 4, verses 2 and 4. They are teachable. Acts 17.11, I mentioned it already. The Bereans were commended because they were noble and they searched the Scripture. Teachable people are people who may not agree with you until they see that you're saying what you say because it's in the Word of God. And as soon as they see that, all opposition ceases. And they realize, I need to change my way of thinking on this. That's called repentance, metanoia, change of mind. So a teachable spirit is something that um, a growing disciple should be giving evidence of. Not only that, they're starting to attend church regularly. Now, that might be because you're bringing them every week, but however it's happening, it's happening. And in that context, probably in the second year of it all anyway, they're starting to serve other believers. Some will volunteer more readily, but they should be starting to work in the church. They need to understand that part of the normal Christian life is you don't just go to church, you work in the church. Remember my statistic last night that the typical Christian doesn't even give an hour a week to anything beyond just showing up and sitting in a chair on Sunday? We're trying to combat that right up front on the, on the you know, wide end of the funnel in the pipeline that I described. Now there's a bunch of verses that speak directly to this matter of attending church regularly. Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. John 13, 34 and 35. Galatians 5, 13. Here's one I really like, Hebrews 10, 25, which says, let us not forsake the habit of gathering ourselves together as some are accustomed to doing. 
Evidently in the first century already there were people who were saying, ah, I don't need to go to the meeting. But you know, it says that of Jesus, it says, He went into His hometown of Nazareth and as was His custom. He went to the synagogue. Jesus was habitual. He was religious about His religion. And we need people to start developing that. There are far too many people who say, oh, I don't feel like going to church today or there's an AFL match on. I think I'll stay in bed or go down to the beach and watch it on my phone. It's all good. That's not discipleship. I'm not saying you can't take vacations either. I'm not a religious, you know, whatever you want to call it, dictator. But let's be clear about what is and what is not true discipleship. 1 John 4.20 and 21 also talks about those who go out from us and do not join with the believers. Not only that, this, this person who is becoming a disciple openly identifies with Jesus where he or she lives and works. They're not ashamed to acknowledge that they are believers and maybe even give testimony. And they have a heart to witness even if they don't really know how to do it yet. And they're growing in effectiveness at soul winning. You know why they're growing in effectiveness at soul winning? Because you are teaching them how to win souls. Of course, that implies that you are winning souls. So if you haven't led anyone to the Lord in a month, something's wrong. Or a year. Or five. I'm not going to put an exact number on it because I know sometimes the ground is harder. People aren't receptive. But there should be some sort of a stream of people in your life. I told you last night, last year I led about 500 people to the Lord. This year my numbers are down. And I, and I, you know, I know it's partly because I'm tired and I've seen many opportunities to engage and I've decided to decline because I wouldn't be able to follow up or I was too tired to take one more person on. But I've still led this year probably about 200 people to the Lord. So that's still, what, four a week or so, more or less. Now I get it, I'm, I'm out there traveling and I'm one of those guys. But this is supposed to be for everybody. It's not supposed to be for the big names. It's not just for Todd White and Daniel Kalenda. It's for everybody. So we're teaching these converts right up front as they're becoming disciples. It is the normal Christian life to share your faith. And we want to develop the competency. I don't know how to do it. We'll learn. I don't know where to learn. I can recommend some books. We could go out witnessing together. There's a lot of things we can do to build that. But like I said, disciples are pupils. They practice the craft. And since we've now defined part of that as being evangelistic and outward facing, we want them to do that at the front end of the pipeline, not have to unlearn a life of passivity and fellowshipitis five years into the process. Does that make sense? Are we communicating? It's really quiet. General guidelines and outcomes. We want this person who is becoming a disciple to develop personal convictions. Usually that is best developed through why questions. Why does the passage say this? Why didn't the angel preach to Cornelius? Why did he send for Peter? Why did Peter go? Those kinds of questions, you could supplement them with who, what, where, and how. But those kinds of questions about the passages that we're reading and the questions of life will develop that in us. We also want perspective to grow as they are growing as disciples. 
What do I mean by perspective? They're thinking about somebody other than themselves. Their needs, their wants, their struggles. It's not that those don't matter, they do very much. But we want them to start thinking about those around them. They are becoming otherly. Not only that, Mark 7:37, Jesus was commended for doing all things well. We want excellence. We want them to seek excellence for the Lord. They'll fall short of it, just like you will. It's okay. But we want to put that in their mind because if they aim high and they fall a little bit low, they'll still be higher than if they're just kind of slagging along, you know, like the average person out there in society. We also want them to be developing depth of character. Now this means Christ's character. So that means this is a lifelong process where they become more and more and more like Jesus. And by the way, this is something that never really ends. You know, you can think you've got every single thing in your life under control, and yet there will often be that one thing that you, you continue to wrestle with. And we want to encourage them rather than chiding them. Expect that there will be mistakes. Know it, just like a kid learning to drink milk. How many glasses of milk have they tipped over on the dining room table? It's the same sort of thing. We want to develop desire for Jesus in them by explaining how we have daily time with God and the benefits of it. And we want to help them fellowship with others of like mind, typically by introducing them. And you should be praying for this person regularly. Both on the go, modeled best by Nehemiah in his praying, and also in focused praying where it says, Epaphras, my fellow servant, is constantly wrestling in prayer for you. When you're wrestling in prayer, it means focused and concerted. You ever, have you ever wrestled? Sometimes everything you've got is going into trying to pin your opponent. Every bit of energy you have is being exerted to try and make that happen. So it's both, not either or. Okay, for these disciples that we are raising, this is where Kirk wanted me to focus, I have 30 specific training objectives, 30. 30, I know it's a lot, 30, but when you hear them, you'll go, yep, that should be on the list, all right, 30. Number one, assurance of salvation, I already talked about it. The objective, of course, is that they are able to express to another person, maybe you, but maybe someone outside of you, their own assurance of salvation, both based on their faith in Christ and one or more promises from the Bible. Of course, that means that you've familiarized them with those promises from the Bible. How are you going to do that? Well, review the gospel message with them again to be sure they got it. Have them explain how they know that they are a Christian. And maybe give them an opportunity to share that with someone else. Maybe take them down to coffee club and let them share there. If you don't do it there, well, maybe they can share with another person in the church. You could have a Bible study with them on the assurance of salvation too. There's a number of verses that you could use like 1 John 5.13 or 1 John 5.11 and 12 which precedes it. Or maybe the Gospel of John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. Or Romans 8.16. Those are just a few. There's many others. You can certainly add to the list. But the point is that there's some grounding there. Number two, I already said this, you want them to have a quiet time. You want them to learn how to at least find God on their own. So, what is a quiet time? Well, it's generally reading the Bible and praying. And it's quiet. So you're not doing it while you're watching TV or driving to work. 
You're doing it where you've turned off the influences of the outside world. The cell phone is in flight mode or off completely or in the other room. That's a really important one. By the way, this tells you you can't have your devotions on a cell phone for obvious reasons. You will get distracted. What are the activities? Well, talk to them about the benefit you've received from a regular uh, habit of quiet times. Maybe do it together with them as I've already said. Maybe show them how to pray through a psalm or to pick out nuggets from Proverbs, something that's accessible. You know, don't take them to the book of Leviticus for their first devotional. That would be a bad answer. That comes later. There's a bunch of scriptures I could give you, but I'm not going to give them. If you're interested in all these scriptures, I can excise this, make it a little manual, give it to Kirk. He can distribute it, you know, as kind of the follow-up. But if we, if we go through all these scriptures now, we, we will literally not finish. So I'm going to skip all the scriptures. Not that they're not important, I'm just trying to keep it going. Third thing, we want them to have victory over sin. The objective is that they know how to experience victory over temptation, both through reliance on the Holy Spirit and promises from the Bible. They need both. A lot of times people try to resist sin. They don't know how to open the Scripture to find any assistance. And they say, well, I cried out to God and He didn't help me. Maybe what you needed was Scripture. Jesus did. Hello? Three times in the wilderness He quoted Scripture. On the other hand, if all they know is the Bible, but they don't know how to you know, partner with the Holy Spirit, that's not going to work well either. And we also want the person to be able to talk about I'll just say current testimony of victory over current temptation or, you know, desire to sin. Here's where I didn't fall to what I used to do. God gave me the strength. He saw me through. So what are the activities you're going to do with this new convert that is becoming a disciple? Well, share your own recent victory over sin. You're not free of being tempted. Maybe go over 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says God is able... He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But in every way, he will, or in every case, He will make a way. So give them some confidence. And maybe memorize some relevant scripture. How about Psalm 119, 9-11? talks about, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. You know, a lot of times people don't live according to the word of God. They don't even know they're not living according to the word of God. And then they wonder why they fall in the ditch. Tell you a funny story on this one. I, I had a couple in a home group that I led some years ago with my wife, and um, this couple fell in love, and you know they were going to get married, and so of course, being in love and being young and nubile, you know what they wanted to do. So they decided to do a Bible study. So they looked all through the Bible, looking for where it said you can't have sex before marriage, and they didn't see it anywhere. They saw all this stuff about fornication and adultery, but they didn't use a dictionary to find out what is fornication, what is adultery. So then they both felt really grieved and quenched. They didn't know why, and they came and saw Beth and me, and they said, you know, we're feeling like we've, we've lost our faith, and we're out of fellowship with God, and everything's wrong. And I said, have you guys slept together? Well, yeah. Why did you do that? Well, because we did a Bible study, and it didn't say we couldn't. The penny dropped. This is the kind of stuff young converts do. You can't take for granted that they know that. So we explain to them the way of the Lord more fully, as the scripture says, and admonish them not to do this again, prayed for them to be forgiven, prayed with them for forgiveness, and they went on and they still walk with the Lord today. Thankfully, they didn't get pregnant through their little escapade. 
But part of what brought them victory over sin between that event and their ultimate wedding day was the fact that they now had some teaching and some grounding in Scripture that showed them you cannot do this. And the Holy Spirit will give you a way out of that. Sometimes, by the way, that way out of it will be the Spirit of, the God, of, Spirit of God will nudge you and just say, uh, leave, leave the apartment now. We could call that a word of wisdom. Right? It may not always be an angel appeared. But if an angel appears, great. Follow the angel. As long as it's not an angel of light. Fourth objective, separation from sin. This is similar but not the same. The objective is to take steps to avoid sin and separate from it. We're now being proactive. We're learning there be danger. If you have a problem with, with uh, you know, sex addiction, don't go to strip clubs. Don't go to them anyway. But especially if that's the life you came out of. Right? Don't surf the internet on certain sites. Stop doing that stuff. If you have a problem with violence, don't watch Fatal Attraction 2 or Terminator or, you know, whatever. I, you get the point. Pray with them about how to avoid sin and solicit prayer from others when they have that going on. As activities, discuss their common areas of weakness to sin. Everybody's got them. Somebody's weak for drugs. You know, they're about to legalize marijuana in California. They've already legalized it in a bunch of states in the United States. Guess what? Marijuana use is skyrocketing. I don't care if it's legal under the law, it's still not okay with God. So we're going to have a lot more marijuana dealings that are going to be coming. Alcohol, pornography, anger, theft. There's all kinds of things that may be an area of weakness. Lying, exaggeration. And on and on and on and on it goes. So discuss with them their common areas. Maybe they don't even see them all, so gently say, do you think you might have a problem with this? Make it a question, not a statement. Raise the issue early, because the Lord wants to clean all that out of their lives. We're trying to build disciples here. Pray with the disciple about the sins with which she or he struggles. And as encouragement, share a personal victory over one of your own sins. Ideally one that you've gained mastery over now. Help them to find fellowship with victorious people, maybe in the areas where they've struggled before, so that those people who might have specific insights and so forth can help reinforce that. Again, I've got a bunch of scriptures, we'll overlook them. Fifth step, Christian fellowship. We want them going to church, I already talked about that. We also would like them to be in some sort of other gathering each week. It might be a Bible study, it could be a prayer meeting, it could be a home group. Don't just tell them to go, take them with you. You say, I've already got a full enough calendar. Yeah, but you're trying to raise this spiritual baby to maturity. You won't have to do this all the time, but you do need to at least get the process started by showing engagement yourself. As part of the activities in this step, learn about their church background if they have any. If they don't have a church background, ask more broadly about their spiritual background. They might have been a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Sikh or a Jain. Or maybe they were a Zoroastrian. Maybe they belonged to uh, the first spiritualist church of Brisbane and they're used to summoning the dead. You want to understand some of their spiritual background. 
A lot of this stuff is going to require deliverance down the road. Some of it might require some inner healing. There's a lot of things that go with this. Be thorough. Know the person with whom you are working. Invite them to lunch or dinner to meet other Christians. Invite them to Bible studies. Again, I've got a bunch of scriptures. I'm going to skip them. With regard to the Bible, number six, our objective is that they become familiar with the books of the Bible. And they should also understand its inspiration. They should be willing to say, I believe the Bible is God's Word. And they should be convinced of that. They're not just mouthing it because you said it. How are they going to get that? Well, you need to show them some scriptures that talk about things like all scripture is breathed out by God. Theopanustos means breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, training, instructing, correction, and righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God would be equipped thoroughly unto every good work. They should be able to recite these things. That, by the way, was 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. So take them to those places and show them. Help them get a Bible. They might not own one. Only 45% of Australian Christians own a Bible of any kind. 45% of Australian Christians. I don't know what the rest of them are doing, but I'll tell you one thing, that's part of why they aren't disciples. Because disciples are people of the Word. And if 45% of Christians own one, that means 55% do not. So help them find a Bible. I would strongly recommend that you bring them to the ESV, the English Standard Version, or the New American Standard Version, NASB, or the New King James Version, NKJV. There are other translations, there are other paraphrases, and in the end, the one that's the best Bible for them is the one that they will read. So take, maybe take an assessment of their reading comprehension level. And if the ones I described are a little too high in terms of the language they use and the grammar and so forth, get one that's a little easier to read. I'd rather have them read a dumbed-down version that's not as accurate than nothing at all. Later on, they can upgrade to a more rigid or rigorous translation. If you don't know which ones to take them to off of the three I just named, go talk to David or Kirk or some other people in the church or write to me. You guys, most of you know me. So just write to me and I'll help you with it. Also, show them how to use a concordance. Show them what those funny little things in the center of the page are, called center references. Let them know how to use that stuff. They can learn from that. When I was a young believer, someone sat me down and showed me what those were, and literally, I read through the whole Bible and every single verse where it had the little tiny letter that was, you know, a superscript, in every single verse, I would look at the letter, I'd look at the center reference, and I looked up every single center reference anywhere in the Bible. It took a long time, but it was huge in terms of dividends. Show them how to do that. They don't know how to do that. You do, I think. Introduce them maybe to online websites. Two of the best are blueletterbible.org and studylight.org. They both do pretty much the same thing. I think Blue Letter is a little better most of the time. But what Study Light is better at, it's way better at. So maybe they learn both. But don't confuse them. If they're confused, just give them one let them be with that for a while. Because they've got a lot of learning to do anyway. They don't need to have everything in front of them right now. Again, I've got a trainload of scriptures. We're skipping them. Hearing the Word. They need to learn to take notes on a sermon as a means of capturing its content and meaning. And with this, by the way, they also need to note that when they read the Bible, if something really, wow, what was that? It really arrests their attention. Hits them upside the head like a dead fish, right? 
when, when that happens, we want them to note that God is speaking to me. What did that mean? What is God saying? We want them to start learning the competency of hearing the voice of God early on. There are many people in churches all over this country and mine too that were never taught to hear the voice of God and they've been walking with God for 30 years and if you ask them, has the Lord ever spoken to you? Not that I know of. That's a crime. It's not a crime not to hear from God. It's a crime not to hear, teach people to hear from God. So what are the activities? Well, show them an aha moment that you had in the Scripture. Go to church together and show them how you take notes on the sermon. Maybe compare your notes for a couple weeks so they can see kind of how you do it and how they do it. Do they always need to take notes? No. Some of you aren't taking notes now. David's not. Maybe he knows all this. John's not. Maybe he just thinks I'm an idiot. I don't know. But on the other hand, Ken's sitting here taking copious notes. I can tell you when I was a young believer and I was moving through this very cycle myself, I never showed up at church without a Bible. Of course, we didn't have electronic ones then. Without a Bible and a notebook of some kind, and I would take notes. I still have the notes I took of John Wimber's sermons in the early 1980s when I first showed up at the Vineyard Church because what he was saying was so different from any teaching I'd ever heard. I thought, I want every piece of it. And because I'd been to college, and I went to a tough college, you would say university, um, I knew how to take notes fast and good. And so... And I'd go home and I'd reread the notes and then I'd compare all the scriptures and everything. I was soaking it up. We want people to do that. That, by the way, too, is part of... Remember what I talked about time, energy, and money? That's an energy one. How much effort do you put into what you, yourself, are hearing in the, in the sermon week by week? Or if you're watching it on YouTube when you're, when you're watching the YouTube. And there's a lot of ways we take in information these days. So. But just think about that. So take notes, discuss the value of that activity, and share what you received from the sermon. It's a really important point. You know, I went to a conference not long ago, and Bill Johnson gave this awesome sermon, but I had a trainload of stuff that I had to do, so I'm on my iPad wirelessly, and I'm processing stuff while Bill is preaching, and I was flipping back and forth between my note-taking and the email that I was processing, and afterward I went back and I looked at my notes, and it was one of the best sermons I'd ever heard from anybody. And I looked at it and I went, these notes don't even come close to what Bill said. And I thought, I'm going to have to get that recording, go back and listen to it again. You know the old saying, if you don't have time to do it right the first time, where are you going to find time to do it over? Case in point. I don't take notes on every sermon. I usually show up nowadays and I'll listen. And if I hear something going on that's really noteworthy, out comes something to take notes. Might be a piece of paper, could be electronic, but I'm going to, I'm going to capture it somehow. So, don't ever lose that discipline of life. It's part of how you anchor this stuff into your mind and into the depths of your soul. Alright, next we want them to read the Word of God. They need a systematic way to read the Word of God. Every believer should have enough familiarity with the Bible having read through the whole thing. Now, I have personally read through the entire Bible 40 times in my life. But there are specific parts of the Bible that I've read two or three hundred times because I've drilled into them and I've reread them and reread them and studied them, torn them apart in Greek and Hebrew. I'm obviously beyond the stage of just a beginning disciple, but the point is we want people that are learning to read the Bible. They don't know how to read the Bible. They don't 
For one thing, all the books are out of order. Somebody just starts reading, it's the most confusing thing in the world. My recommendation, get them the one-year Bible. It's called the one-year Bible. And it takes every scripture and it sequences it chronologically. So at least it reads like a novel now, instead of just all this stuff jumbled together. But you know, you can get Bible reading plans online. Blue, Light, uh, Blue Letter Bible and Study Light both have them online. It says, you know, on March 3rd, read this. On March 4th, read this. On March 5th, read this. So they can just check it off. That gives them some structure. It helps them become religious about their religiosity. That, that level of structure, that level of religiosity is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. So what are the activities you're going to do with them? Well, share some insight or some blessing from your own personal reading with him or her. Read a section of the Bible together, again, so they can learn how you do it, how you think about it. And make him or her start reading a New Testament book like maybe Mark or John, something easy, something that doesn't require a lot of what we would call in the language of business, domain expertise. I wouldn't normally drop somebody right into Romans. There's too many technical words like justification and sanctification and election in there. People are like, what? Don't send them to Leviticus or Numbers. Save that for later. It's still the Word of God and it matters, but not yet. Bible study. So reading is one thing, study is another. So we want them to study the Bible in addition to reading it. What are the activities? Well, number one, share why you study the Bible. And do an actual Bible study with them. Show them how to dig into a word that they don't know. Maybe how to use a dictionary. You'd be shocked at how many people don't know what one is. Show them how to find dictionary.com. Should be obvious, but don't take anything for granted. If there's a word they don't know, look it up together. Then, maybe using Blue Letter Bible or Study Light, show them how to open it up and say, this word here that's translated this way in this translation this is the underlying Greek or Hebrew, and you don't need to be afraid that you don't know that because it lays it all out for you. It'll transliterate it. It'll give you the roots. It'll tell you what it means. You can get a better sense of what this is all about. Maybe you, they, maybe you show them how to study the context, how this fits into the overall flow of the argument that's being made in that passage. Or where did this book arise? Why does this book matter? There's a lot of ways to study the Bible. So just pick one. Any of it will be better than just skimming the tops of the waves. Then do it again. And then do it again. Because study in particular requires repetition. They might get the idea of reading pretty quickly, but I guarantee you study they will not. I guarantee you study they will not. So do it again and again. Maybe one week do a word study, next week do a historical study. Maybe one week pull out maps, show them here, this is where it happened. Oh, and by the way, back then it was called Caesarea Philippi, but today it's called Aleppo, Lebanon. Oh, interesting. I read about that on the news last week. Yeah, let's see what's going on there 2,000 years later. There's a lot of ways to make that relevant. You might be saying, I don't do this with myself. Bingo. The reason we don't have disciples is we don't have disciples. You've got to be one to make one. Right? Again, I have scriptures, going to skip them. Scripture memory. The objective is that they begin a process for memorizing and reviewing scripture passages. What's the activities? Well, number one, explain the value of scripture memory. Then memorize a verse together. 
Next week, when you get together, or two days later, or whenever you're getting together with them, go over that scripture. Recite it from memory, Bible closed. Maybe you can check each other. I'll look at mine while you recite, and you look at yours while I recite, but check each other. You go, man, that sounds kind of wooden. There's no way to memorize scripture except to do that. I've memorized a lot of the scripture. Most of you know that, because often when I'm preaching, I just cite blocks of it extempore. Why? Because I've learned the scriptures. Jesus had too. That's how he was able to pull them out and use them to combat Satan in the wilderness. Once upon a time I had a girlfriend. I thought I was going to marry her. I was mistaken. But our most romantic thing that we did together, well not really, but one of the things we did together, we memorized the entire book of Galatians together in the NIV version because back then we didn't have New King James or ESV. We memorized the whole of the book of Galatians. And I was at Princeton at the time and she was still living in Southern California. So when we would have our calls each week, we would check each other on how we were doing reciting the book of Galatians. You might say, I think you're over the top and a little bit too nerdy. Maybe so, but that was how we were building spiritual simpatico as well as romantic love. Hello? And then we wonder, why are we not grounded? Why are we not on the same page with our spouse spiritually? I can still recite huge blocks of the book of Galatians based on that exercise I did with her. You can buy decks of cards called Scripture Memory Cards where they're all pre-printed for you. Then you just carry them around. Tape it to your dashboard. Then when you're on the way to work, you can look at it and then look up again quickly, lest you be accused of texting and driving. But you can work on it while you drive. Or tape it to the kitchen window while you do dishes. You can work. And there's a lot of ways to do this. But the point is you're trying to get Scripture into people's minds because we renew our minds through the Word of God. All right. I'm going to stop one more and then we'll take our break. Meditation. We want to teach people to meditate on the Word of God as well as memorize it. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, lotus position, fingers like this, reciting some Eastern mantra. The idea is that the person can recite, or excuse me, can explain the meaning of scriptural meditation. And maybe a personal story of blessing or of hearing from God by meditating on a recent reading from scripture or a memory verse. Obviously, you're going to be the one who leads this, so you better be doing it. You want to be able to say, I was meditating on Scripture, and God brought this to my mind, or I was reading the Word, and God did this, and then I mulled it over. Now, the word meditate in Hebrew means like a cow chewing its cud. What are you doing? You're chewing it over and over and over. Turning it over in your mind. What does that word mean? Why is this word before that word? How does this fit with the verses before and after? What's really going on here? Lord, is there something more in this that you want me to, see, to understand? You know, the Scripture says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Jesus went further. He said every single letter in Scripture is inspired. The I in the word it is inspired. The A in the word a dog or a rooster crowed, probably a better one. The word A is inspired. 
When you see a word like redemption, it's there because it's inspired. God put it there. So ask why. You're getting the mind of God. You're going deep with the Lord. And you know what? Moses, in his famous prayer in Exodus 33, he said, Lord, teach me your ways so that I may know you. And when I know you, then I will follow your ways so that I may know you more. And the more I know you, the more favor I will get. And as I walk in favor, I will know you more so that I get more favor so that I can know you more. It's an unending cycle. That's what Moses' prayer was in Exodus 33, verses 4 to 6. We need to train people to do that. We need to be doing that. One of the reasons our churches are empty is because we, as the people of God, don't do this enough collectively. Now meditation is something where, what do you want to do? Go down to the park, sit under a tree and zone out and just think about what God has to say. Or sit on your back veranda. Or do it while you're washing the car, if you, people still do that. I think most people use car washes now, but anyway. But I'll tell you where you can't do it. You can't do it in front of the computer. Unless you're staring at the verse on a computer screen, then you could do it. You can't do it while you're watching television. You know why? Because you're watching television. You are training your mind to run down the pathways of the things of God. And if you aren't doing it, your disciple won't because things reproduce after their own kind. So visualize the passage. Visualize the context. Check what it's teaching using that who, what, where, when, why question. And maybe develop a meditation plan with your disciple so that they have a way of going forward with it. Alright, now I'm going to stop here. We're going to take our break. I just unilaterally made an executive decision. We're cutting it to 20 minutes, not 30. So we'll return at high noon and we'll keep on going.